Thank you, Rick and Lynn, for doing that. Wednesday of this week, Judas, one of Jesus' followers, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. On Thursday, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They had a meal together. He instituted the Lord's Supper. Some of our richest theology comes from that time. They sang a hymn together. We don't know what hymn. Maybe Psalm 91 because of the uh, Passover that they were celebrating. On Friday, after a farce of a trial, Jesus is crucified. On Saturday, his followers are quiet and grieving. Maybe not so quiet, though it was a quiet day. And none of that, none of that is disputed historically. And I forgot to read the text. (laughs) On Sunday, though, the tomb was empty. In Mark 16, Mark, who sat at the feet of Peter and listened to his sermons, pens it this way. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed, as we would be. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. I'm also going to be talking a little bit about a letter written Um, before Mark was written, but decades after the events that we just talked about. This is Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is indeed the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This is something that Christians have proclaimed for thousands of years. One of the more evidentially amazing things that happened in the history of religions and people is this small group of mediumly educated blue-collar workers changed when they worshipped because they believed their friend rose from the dead. And therefore, all the things that he said about himself were proven true. The things that happened on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday are disputed by no historian. And we have exceptional evidence of these texts and witnesses. The reason we know the names of the women in Mark is because they were still attending church. And people knew them and were friends with them. And when this was read aloud, people probably elbowed them in church. And you believed these things, some of you, some of you are considering Christianity, in 2019. And yet, in t- and they encouraged you. And you believe these things today, and they are still true. 
I think it's interesting that our worship leader and I live together, and some of the things that she said, I didn't know she was going to say, but they overlap significantly with the sermon. The truths that we believed last year, we still have, but they apply differently. The flourishing Christian life is still one of worship and community and faithful presence to our neighbors, but the application of that looks different this year. This time in our lives, as individuals, as families, and as churches, will be a severe mercy. To quote C.S. Lewis and Sheldon Van Alken, lovely book, feels like food tastes differently to me over the last month. Not all the time, but some of the time. Is that true for you? During this time, prayer, I think, is going to feel different and look different. It does for me. I have found one of my prayer lists from before the time of quarantine, and it looks different. I want to return to it, but it, it, something in me is challenged by that. And I want to encourage you to, and I'm going to do this twice throughout the sermon, um, I want you to grab a physical Bible. I learned this from a, a Polish poet, Sejla Milosz, who talked about the importance of, of grabbing his desk and remembering that he existed in space and time. I want you to grab your physical Bible. I keep looking for new Bibles. You know, Crossway always has like a hundred new ones, the pastor's Bible and larger print, which sadly I'm starting to need, and better notes on the side. I don't really like it. And then I don't. I just, I like this one. It's got tape all over it, partly because I like stickers. Anyway, grab a physical Bible. And remember that these things are still true. They are still true. The application of them will be different during quarantine, and the promises are still true. Historically, evidentially, existentially. Five years ago, I was listening to an economics podcast because a friend of mine named David uh, convinced me to listen to it. Don't listen to a lot of economics anythings. And in it, um, I heard this illustration, and I waited five years to, to tell it to you on a Sunday morning because it is such a beautiful illustration of humanity of a challenging time that beauty can come out of. In 1975, Keith Jarrett, uh, one of the best pianists in history, jazz or not, incredibly innovative, perfectionistic, agreed to play uh, what is now known as the Köln Concert in Cologne, Germany. A very uh, big fan of jazz named Vera Brandis, who was 17, convinced him to come and play after an opera, so 11.30 p.m. He had to drive 350 miles. It was raining. He was in back pain and had trouble sleeping, and he asked for a Basendorfer 290 Imperial Grand Piano to be at the concert hall. What he found instead was the same brand, but not a grand, and one that had only been used for rehearsals. The upper and the lower registers of the piano were almost unplayable, and it wasn't a tuning issue. It was a broken issue. The pedals didn't work, and he said, I'm not playing. And some accounts say that Vera persisted with him to get him to play, and some accounts say that she started crying and said, please, and I, I think she was probably a strong woman. Every Vera I've met was strong. She convinces him to play. His manager and he had already decided to record it. He decides to go in and play. The tech, the, there are technicians there. They did the best they could with the piano. And the Köln concert, if you've never heard it, is incredibly beautiful. It's, impro it's improvisation, um, and it's the best-selling solo jazz album of all time and the best-selling solo piano album of all time because 
Jarrett's genius came through a bit more profoundly with a broken keyboard that he did not want to play. During this season, we're going to learn about ourselves. We're possibly going to learn about some things we were relying on a little too much. The scripture calls that idols. And as we continue to approach the scriptures and the footsteps of the king, we're going to continue to be grown in his likeness. He is risen. He's risen indeed. And that's something that we believe and trust. What we've been looking at is, um, we've been looking at our, our core characteristics of Jesus and core characteristics of his followers. And Jesus trusted God, which is odd, because Jesus is God, and yet he emptied himself. See Philippians 2. And so we watch him trust, and we watch his followers trust, and we are grown through the Holy Spirit's power in trusting of him. And this begins, one aspect of learning to trust him is remembering that these things happened in space and time, in history. There are a number of ways that, that people have approached the historicity of the resurrection because it's really important. Christianity as a religion is important. It is a religion that is also rooted in, his, in history. Lee Strobel explored it as a journalist. C.S. Lewis explored it as a, a, I would say philosophically, though he's not a philosopher, he taught literature. Uh, Simon Greenleaf expo- explored it legally. And that might, this might sound obscure to you, and yet when I am in a place of doubt, when I'm wondering, either because of my anxiousness or because of world events or because of something else, one of the most profound encouragements to me has been the fact that these things happen in space and in time and in history and that around 500 people witnessed, Jesus's, witnessed Jesus after he rose from the dead and spoke about it and wrote about it and began worshiping on Sunday instead of on Saturday or for the first time. Many of them were not followers of God. So our belief and our trust are not simply moves of our mind and emotions, but also moves of history and evidence. When we watch Jesus throughout the book of Mark, we see him trusting God, which means he believed that God exists. He, he had to get to know his Bible like we do. He needed to learn to pray, and he chose to pray. And so we've been looking over the last couple of weeks at these overlapping categories that we see in Jesus and then in his followers, and we're asking the Holy Spirit to grow us in them also, in surrender to God and his will, in in prayer, learning to forgive those that are not for us and have harmed us, learning to avoid temptation, which is choosing life and rejecting death, learning to guard our heart, learning to confess our hope in him to our neighbors holistically. Asking the Holy Spirit to grow us in humility. And what I hope is happening, what I assume is happening, is you are being grown from belief into religion and then hopefully into a follower. One of the more interesting conversations I ever had with someone after church. There we go. Was when I spoke about this. I spoke about the difference between belief and religion, and following. And he said, I'm much more comfortable with Christianity as a religion. And I, I can't remember exactly how I handled it, because what I wanted to say is, I really hope that you grow. But that's what happens. 
to us and with us because of the Holy Spirit's power, we come to believe, which is an intellectual assent. Perhaps we're aware of what it does to us in our uh, humanity, so the existential part of it. But then we grow into perhaps a religious following where we do things because of what we believe, where we speak differently because of what we believe, where we worship corporately on Sunday because of what we believe. But a follower is someone that follows the Lamb wherever he goes. And the bad part of that news is there are places in your life where you don't trust him. And it's not because you were journaling one day and were like, you know, I want to trust God about some things but not others. Let's make a list. Perhaps we'll use the Ten Commandments. I'm going to trust him on eight of them but not these two. No, what happened was someone hurt you or you hurt someone or maybe it was a mistake or an accident or something long-term that you can't even name but you made an agreement in an effort to control your life, which everyone does, in an effort to exert power back, you made an agreement. And because of that agreement, I'll never let them, I'll always, because of that agreement, there are places you do not trust Christ yet. And perhaps the most profound thing I'm going to say in the sermon is this. You need to ask him to help you see the places where you don't trust him. I don't know if it has to do with money or words or sexuality or stuff or time or food or drink. I don't, I don't know what it is. And I know you came by it honestly. The first time that I led a men's retreat the way I have learned that I like to re- lead retreats, which is not with a lot of information, but with time and space to actually rest, I talked for about 10 minutes to the men. It was the only talk. And then I said, I want you now to go outside and ask God if he's proud of you. I hope you already know the answer, but it's worthwhile for you to spend time. And a man stood up to go do what I said, and he said, I swore I would never ask anyone that again. And I just stood there, you know, didn't even do the awkward smile. Just let him go and and deal with God. As we long to receive the kingdom life, that Jesus promises and describes. The Holy Spirit is growing us in trust, and we get to participate in that with him, probably with trusted friends also. But you need to ask him to help you see where you don't trust him, because he is trustworthy, and he's the only one who knows what a flourishing life is and looks like. He is risen, which we believe and trust, and then we move into our world. And I use phrases like this a lot because um, it's the reality of the Christian life. It's not simply things that we believe. It's not simply promises that we're aware of. It has to do with how we interact in our neighborhoods, with the families God has given us, with the co-workers he's given us, with our actual neighbors, and the world looks different. Doesn't it? And it feels different. I'm, in, I'm getting to know a couple of my neighbors a little bit better through this, even though we're not physically talking. I spent 10 minutes talking to the mailman yesterday, and Carrie Carroll, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. He said he yelled at you for picking flowers. What he thought was that someone was picking flowers and just stealing them. All he saw was someone cutting flowers at a church and putting, getting back in their car and driving away, and I'm like, she was putting them on the cross? with Anyway, Vinny spent a long time talking to me about that. If you have your physical Bible, though, hold it. As we move into our world, though that movement is different, the promises 
and the truths and the calls to agency and action are the same. Though the application of that is different. My neighbor who said, not a chance I'm coming to church, is almost out of beer and is somehow nervous to call the liquor store and, and have them deliver, even though they deliver, which is, and so I offered to do it for him. Yeah, I'll call him. And he's not an older man. I don't know why he's nervous. But there are conversations which always end up talking about fear and anxiety, so we're getting to become better friends. Our movement into the world is the same, though it looks different. And sometimes what happens with us um, in good moments, but also in, in not so good moments, is our faith plus panic produces these things that I'm calling almost truths. What Kay Bowler calls them in her phenomenal book is uh, Lies We Love. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us a little bit more benefit of the doubt here and call them almost truths. In our, and, and, and not even just in moments of panic plus faith equal almost truths. It's panic and pain, or just pain. We end up making agreements. I agreed years ago in my head that when someone tells me I asked a good question, I say thank you. Sometimes that comes across a little obnoxiously. Might be a good agreement for me to break. The more profound ones are the ones that most of the time we're not aware of until they pop up relationally. And one of the ways that we make subtle agreements is shown by statements that we make. Like God doesn't give us more than we can handle. And there are a bunch of problems with statements like this, in my opinion. Some of you know that I'm into thinking about words. I don't particularly like the word just, unless we're talking about justice. I don't particularly like the word normal, because I think we mostly use it to judge ourselves and others. And I think, or perhaps overthink, about statements like this. And we could wordsmith it a little bit, you know, like Princess Bride. You keep saying that word. I don't think it means what you think it means, be it either give or handle. We could kind of tweak it, like, does God allow us to go through things that will emotionally be challenged. Because once we start nuancing it, I think we're getting towards something. But one of the ironies of these almost truths or lies is that we do it to remember truth. And yet it comes, becomes a little me-focused, doesn't it? Isn't this sta- is this statement more about God or is it more about us? And one of the other ironies of it is we think that it might help us encourage our neighbor, but actually... When we think about that statement, isn't it kind of judgy? Because when they can't handle it, when they break down, because of really legit circumstances, whether they're from their past internally or fear about the future, if we're leaning on a statement like God doesn't give us more than we can handle, I think we end up judging them in a little bit. One of the places that we get to a statement like this is from Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like I could still dunk even though I couldn't when I was 18 and I'm 42 now. If I would just pray and perhaps exercise. Perhaps I can do something beautiful medically. Or perhaps I can save more than I'm capable of saving. It's a little bit of a Greek to English thing, but it's mostly a context thing. Paul's writing this letter from prison talking about joy which is contentment in all things. I've found the secret to be brought low, and, well, I should just read it. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. By the way, he's talking about their financial support of the ministry, in part. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty 
and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And for us, the way we talk now, it's all the things. I can do all the things. And there is profound encouragement in that. Because I know that sometime this week you're going to wonder about getting out of bed. And I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Like I can run fast. Or I can do all the things that are mine to do because of where God has placed me this Tuesday. The job, the family, food, putting on hard pants instead of soft pants. I think it's at best an almost truth that God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Because what's the gospel? Just take, we'll take the phrase as it sits. What's the gospel? That we can't handle it. And we receive Christ who handled it for us. This is a new series that we're starting. I love to start, to finish a series and start a series at the same time. I'm not sure if it's a good idea rhetorically. No one taught me to do that. I just decided to kind of smash some ideas together. None of our elders have pushed back on me about that. Lots of other things they've pushed back on me about. We move into our world with joy and hope. And I don't know how hopeful you feel. And not hope like, I hope I feel better tomorrow. Hope like I'm confident in Jesus and his promises. And I'm going to give you two of his promises in a minute if you can't think of any off the top of your head. Though in the book of Colossians, I think there are about 32. And you can read Colossians in 10 minutes if you need to grab a promise. A friend asked me this week, what is life, you like to use the word abundant life or a flourishing life, and this is um, because the word life, there are multiple words for life in the Bible, and especially in Galatians, when Paul talks about life, he's talking about zoe life, so an abundant life, not just, you know, is my heart beating, bios, life. And she said, what does life in a pandemic look like? What does real life, what does flourishing life look like? What does it look like, now I'm extending her question, what does joy look like? What does hope look like? I think it looks similar internally and very different externally. We are still worshiping. Good job. Thank you. I'm looking around at our worship team. You did a good job leading us today. I'm going to put those songs on a Spotify playlist, and I'm not going to listen to it in the car because I'm not going to get in my car this week, but I'm still going to listen to it. Flourishing life continues to involve worship, which is everything. All that you do with your money and time and words and is worship, and yet worshiping through song is good. You're like, I don't like singing. You could grow because it's important. It's an important part of the Christian life. Paul says twice in two different letters with songs and psalms and uh, hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. You don't like your voice? Crank up the volume. It also involves community. I have two meetings this week where I'll have an opportunity to risk a little bit in friendship. God gives us community to help us flourish, and it looks different. If you're sick of Zoom, you're probably not the only one, and you can use Google Hangouts or whatever, and yet we still need community, and I want to encourage you to risk this week. Wisely, don't tell your whole life story. They're not ready for that but risk 
when you go to a meeting with friends, make one perhaps brief, maybe don't even explain it or apologize for it. Risk. And we are still called to be faithfully present. What a joy and hope actually look like in our lives. It means my neighbor's nervous about ordering beer, so I ordered beer for him. And if that is challenging for you, I don't know if it was the right thing to do. It means instead of bringing certain kinds of food, now we're mostly bringing toilet paper to the local food pantry, but we're still doing it. And I think one of the ways that we move into our life with joy and hope, move into our, our places, is by not relying on almost truths, but relying on truths. That you can do all the things through Christ who gives you strength. Here's another one. I use this all the time as a benediction because it's a lovely promise. Six verses before in Philippians chapter 4. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a joy and hope look like. Well, they look different if someone was watching you on satellite, camera. But they're the same internally. You probably didn't want this piano. The metaphor is your life. You were tired. You didn't sleep well. Back was hurting. And yet, God has called you to be a worshiper of him and to love well the neighbors he's put into your life. Go ahead, Liam. We're going to listen just a minute. that wasn't quite as loud for you as it was for me. That bass that you heard was not the bass. It was the broken pedal. And he starts singing soon after that, or just kind of groaning in this music. This is going way better than I thought. And I want you to know something. I think you're already doing this. Because of the resurrection power that the Holy Spirit has put into your heart, I think you are already playing beautifully. And I want you to know I'm proud of you. I hear stories about relearning community, relearning worship, relearning being faithfully present in this time. And I'm proud of you. He is risen. And that means we can do all the things God has called for us to do because of the joy and the hope that we receive by faith because of the work of Jesus Christ. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we love and trust you. 
and ask that you grow us in the places that do not fully trust you. Jesus, we are so thankful for the empty tomb and ask that you teach us to rely on it that we might flourish in the ways that you described. Holy Spirit, we believe that you are here right now comforting and assuring us. And we ask that you give us a felt sense of that. Speak peace to our hearts. We praise and thank you that we can praise and thank you because of your pursuing love. Amen.